Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue with our 34th podcast in the series of the second half of World History or World History 2. In the 33rd podcast, we explored the fall of the Soviet Union and the prominent role that both Ronald Reagan as well as Premier's, Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev played in bringing, an end, bringing to an end that decades-long conflict. But the majority of that podcast focused on Reagan's actions and that of his successor, George H.W. Bush. What I'd like to turn my attention to now is the role that Gorbachev himself played. And remember, too, that despite Gorbachev being somewhat younger than his predecessors, he was in much better health. However, he was still a child of the Cold War. He was still a child, an acolyte of the Soviet Union and the communist mantra. That said, it's not as though there was any one particular aspect of Gorbachev's personality that allowed the Cold War to come to a thaw. Rather, what it what promoted or prompted him to begin to start rethinking the different aspects of the Cold War itself, ironically enough, was where he landed in Canada. In a trip where he, his plane was circling in order to come to a, to a landing, to, to land, he looked out of the window and he was kind of surprised at what he saw on the ground below the plane. When the plane landed and he got into his limousine, as he paraded through the streets of Canada to his destination, he was amazed by the amount of different colors of the automobiles, the different styles, the different types. And it didn't stop there. It also was the way the people were dressed, the food choices the people had. And he turned to an aide, and in almost a broken voice, he said, I've never had that as a child. Most of the people of Russia don't have that now. That's what got him thinking that perhaps not that communism is wrong, not that the Soviet Union shouldn't continue down its trajectory, but rather there had to be a changing of the structure of the Soviet government and society if they were going to hope to keep up with the rest of the world. That's what prompted him to launch one of two programs, the first known as Perestroika, which also is known as restructuring. And that's where the governmental policies essentially began to abandon the old Soviet style. While the goal was to improve living conditions, the economy, however, continued to decline significantly. That's also when 
Gorbachev launched the program Glasnost, which translated means openness. In other words, the censorship of the media was relaxed. He allowed the ability to own land to be returned to the Russian people. The ability to express public dissent would be allowed now. Perhaps what Gorbachev didn't anticipate was the tsunami of negative press coverage that the journalists would write about the Soviet era and the Soviet Union as a whole, not attacking him personally, but the policies of the Soviet Union as they had been maintained going back to the era of World War II. A combination of that loosening of the governmental style, along with the lessening of censorship, allowed the actual Soviet model to crumble at its base. What's more, and oftentimes not commonly known, is that the Soviet Union was flat out running out of money and was soon to be broke. Depending upon how one looked at the country's loans versus its income, one could even argue that it already was broke and had been for some time. The fact of the matter is nobody, internet for international currency traders, no one trusted the Russian ruble, whereas the American dollar had triple A ratings, the highest in that category. There simply was no confidence, internally or externally, of the Soviet model. Because of the crumbling economic situation within the Soviet Union, the military were, suffered the brunt of that by falling behind in armaments, falling behind in technology, getting to a point that in some cases, tanks and jeeps literally couldn't move because they ran out of gasoline with no idea of when the money would be there to be able to refuel the vehicles. That prompted in November of 1989 for the Berlin Wall to slowly start getting destroyed by people on both sides of that wall. When the Soviet Union could not react, the wall began to, began to come down in earnest, launching a domino effect of country after country breaking away from the Soviet Union. Please know, Gorbachev may have been alarmed at the rapid response of this loosening of the tensions. However, he firmly believed in the Soviet model and thought that after a little bit of breathing room, in time, the Soviet states will elect to stay part of the Union. So confident was that that he proposed to abandon its hold on buffer states and colonies in 1990 and holding a truly fair election on December 8th, 1990, to find out if the individual countries that were former Soviet satellites, if they would elect to remain in and part of the Soviet Union or to break away. Every country, all of its people that voted on December 8, 1990, voted to abandon the Soviet Union and its stranglehold on its peoples. The Soviet Union, by later that month, ceased to exist. And as a result, the Cold War by default also ceased to exist. On Christmas Day, 1990, arguably one of the most important Christmases in American history, 
following perhaps only the Christmas of 1776 with that famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware for a significant colonial victory, George H.W. Bush in 1990 found out that America's arch nemesis that had been its enemy since 1945 was now gone and the Cold War was over. Needless to say, euphoria would grip every aspect of society worldwide. It would permeate all circles, including academia, as people began to wonder what would the future look like now, all in positive amazement at what now perhaps the world could accomplish with that massive bipolar world that existed for the past 45 years known as the Cold War, now over. Some political groups within Russia wanted the changes to take place faster. Leading spokesman was none other than Boris Yeltsin. And in August 1991, there was a coup attempt to overthrow Gorbachev. Now you might wonder, wait a minute, the Soviet Union's over. What's Gorbachev doing? Well, (laughs) Russia still exists. You see, the Soviet Union, as explained in earlier podcasts, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, Yes, that collection, that band tying them together is gone, but Russia was the largest state within that union. Russia, of course, still exists, Gorbachev leading it. Yeltsin defended the Kremlin as well as Gorbachev. But by December 25th, 1991, the Soviet Union was now abolished completely one year later and Gorbachev left that terminated position. So throughout 1991, the Soviet states collectively began to crumble more and more until finally it ceased to exist both in reality and on paper. The question then begs, what would the future look like for Russia as well as her former Soviet puppet states who now for the first time again in almost a half a millennium, are now independent. That's good, excuse me. Not the past 500 years, a half a century, 50 years, are now independent. First off, there was no European country that was the leading power in the world. We were immediately thrown back to the balance of power idea of a multipolar world. During the Soviet era, International relations was dominated by a bipolar world, by, of course, meaning two massively strong leaders, the Soviet Union and the United States. The Soviet Union being gone now, no European country is the hegemonic power worldwide, only the United States remains, which is why some international relations experts describe that we went from a bipolar world to a unipolar world, meaning one power on top. Please note that many, again, in academia thought that that was nothing but a recipe for future peace. There were even essays written by international relations scholars, many of which I've read, that talked about the way that maybe warfare as we once knew it would now come to an end. Humanity's involvement with warfare would be over now, starting in the early, early 1990s going forward. Needless to say, listeners, how wrong they were. Very few international relations scholars 
had the ability to see the reality that what lied ahead, what lay ahead for the world was not more peace and security, but the exact opposite. A leading scholar along this line was a realist by the name of, known by the name of John J. Mearsheimer out of the University of Chicago. In his, what should be an award-winning essay that was titled, and the title says everything, Why We Shall Soon Miss the Days of the Cold War. Because the Cold War gave the world, by and large, a sense of stability that the future now would no longer have. Democratic principles, such as freedom of expression, due process of law, and respect for and in civil society, would have to be grappled with in these former Soviet republics that now had independence thrust on them. Even though, of course, they voted for it, many were scratching their heads asking, where do we begin? Please note that America was no different. After we finally got Great Britain off of our backs in September of 1783, we grappled ourselves with how to run our own country with the freedom of the ability to choose, and we fell flat on our faces. And some of you might say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? The Constitution's still in effect. No, the Constitution was our second attempt at self-government. Our first attempt was the Confederation Congress, which was about as effective only on the parchment that it was written. The economic, political, and social development, again, seems to somehow regress as one travels from west to east. It would take a long time for the Eastern European states to get out of that Soviet-dominated umbrella and attempt to try to forge a way for themselves and their people positively moving forward. And it didn't go well. Throughout the 1990s, there would be over 27 major wars on the planet. Of those 27, 25 of them would be civil wars. In other words, now that so many of these republics in different countries around the world had their independence for no longer fearing an American invasion or a Soviet invasion, began again to try to figure out who would lead them. And that's when concerns about religious and ethnic cleansing started to take place. When individuals on the outside looking inside these civil wars could not begin to understand why two sides were fighting with one another when they had the same religion, they had the same ethnic DNA. To the outside looking in, that's the way it appeared. But the internals, the city, the people themselves knew otherwise. And sadly, the, atro the atrocities that would take place as a result in March 2014, under the leadership of, Put of Yeltsin's successor, who stepped down in 2000, that being Vladimir Putin, he took back the Crimean Peninsula. Depending upon when you're listening to this, you're recognizing, too, that, that Putin and the Ukraine are back in the news once again and have been for the past several months because of the lack of international response against Vladimir Putin, who took the Crimean Peninsula with no negative ramifications to speak of, now has seems to have his eye on the entire country of the Ukraine. Why? Because he is so deathly afraid of the threat that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, poses to him. No, of course there is no threat to him, but you can't explain that to him. When in, the Mar in March of 2014, right after the Winter Olympics in Sochi, 
Vladimir Putin invaded and took that peninsula. With a limited U.S. and European response, did this not look like a replay of the 1930s, with Hitler essentially being in the form of Putin and President Obama at that time looking like Neville Chamberlain, that more or less if Putin agrees to stop there, we won't move any further against him. But all that did was embolden the Soviet, the Russian leader. So how will Russia fit in with Europe as we move further into the 21st century? While clearly countries around the world were handling Russia with, with kid gloves, now that's even more fragile and potentially more deadly, depending upon what he does with Ukraine. Because if he attempts to overtake that truly independent nation to try to return Russia to its former size and glory, even though that glory is in his own eyes only, what will the world reaction be, specifically the American reaction, to a Russian dictator who is now resembling Joseph Stalin and the former German leader of Adolf Hitler? As we're into the 21st century as well, we know, of course, and I, I, it's not that I skipped over it, I wanted to handle the fall of the Soviet Union and Russian fitting, Russia fitting into global politics moving forward as well as Europe. I wanted to encapsulate that in one part of the segment. However, as Russia and those countries figured out how to maintain their independence and what their futures looked like, America also received for the first time in 80 years, a significant attack, excuse me, 60 years, a significant attack on our own soil, known, of course, as the September 11th events. The September 11th terrorist attacks was not the first time that organizations around the world took pot shots at the United States. Remember that before 9-11, there actually was a bombing at the World Trade Center in the parking lot garage down below one of the towers. Yes, the individual was caught, but this was not the first attack. 9-11 was not the first attack on those two towers. We also had different incidents throughout the 1990s of domestic terrorist events by our own people attacking places like the Oklahoma City bomber. These types of terrorist events were putting Americans, Americans on edge. We also had our international events with the USS Cole bombing in October of 2000. With no real negative American response back, as in some cases we felt helpless with how to go after an actual terrorist organization, it wasn't like they had a place in this map of the world that they could call home that we could invade in retribution or revenge. So again, it's not the first attack. There were many attacks in also Western European countries as well. The U.S. response was to invade when we had the first attack on American soil in the War of 1812, September, uh, December 7th, 1941. Our U.S. response was to fight those countries, either here on our own soil, as in the case with Great Britain, or go bring the war back to their homeland as we did with Japan in World War II. The difference between 9-11 and those other attacks in world history is that there was no visible enemy or enemy home base, or at least so we thought. As America 
and by extension the world around us, began to grip with the reality that warfare in the 21st century would not necessarily be one country, country A, attacking country B, whether right next to them or on the other side of the planet. Warfare looked like now it could take place with what appeared to be invisible terrorists attacking us in ways that we could never have predicted. Who would have thought prior to 9-11 that passenger, private passenger airline airliners could be turned into weapons of war used to rain down destruction wherever those planes crashed? It's almost as though the terrorists had their own air force, except that the planes weren't theirs, they were ours, but they took them over and used those planes as truly weapons of terror. The more we began to learn, though, about 9-11, because clearly an attack of that magnitude, of that scale, could not happen overnight. There had to be extensive planning. And therein is how we learned, how America and the world learned by, by extension, that these terrorists may not be so invisible after all. It was discovery and the launching of what we became known and still known as the five-ringed attack. The five-ringed, five like the number five, and ring, I don't mean to draw in as a comparison the Olympic symbol of the five rings, but that kind of idea. And then here's what was learned and what we mean by each of these five rings, is in order for a terrorist organization to attempt to attack any country anywhere in the world, they need things. They have to have things in order to carry that off. First off, they need land. No, they may not have a country that they call home and purposely don't want one because it's too easy to find their address, but they still need a place that they even temporarily will use to handle other activities that'll be that'll lead towards an effective carrying out from their perspective of a future terrorist attack. They need land. They need a place to temporarily call home. They need places to eat, to sleep, to train, to plan. They do have a place on this planet. With 70% of the world covered by water, that brings it down to 30%. And there's quite a few hotspot areas around the world that America quickly figured out that they could be using Al-Qaeda, which means the base, could have used to launch this attack. Remember, in 2022, when I'm recording this podcast, we know that there were no future, no later attacks specifically against the United States of the magnitude of 9-11. But remember, back in 2001 and in the months and years that followed, we didn't know that. They don't have hindsight to know that another major terrorist attack attack was in the was in the offing so land was clearly one of those five rings secondly you couldn't pull off an attack like that on the cheap it would be expensive money would have to be spent money would have to be earned in order to be spent the ability to raise funds and the need to spend those funds every one of those sources of income and expenditures can be a potential signature on who's doing what and where. It's a weakness. Weapons. 
Al-Qaeda, ISIS, they're not terrorist organization because of the power of the ridiculous words. They're a terrorist organization because of what they do when they get their hands on weapons. What weapons? Where? How did they get them? How were they transporting them? That's the third ring. So the first ring, land. Second, money. Third, weapons. Fourth, communication. They have to communicate. Digital, the digital world is so easy now to pick up a cordless device and send written or recorded or audio communication. But they also are smart enough to know that every one of those communications leaves a signature behind that can be detected by world organizations. Interesting that in terms of communication, that's how the United States figured out where Osama bin Laden was. Nope. Bin Laden, unfortunately, was smart enough to never have a handheld device, never to talk on a cell phone. He went back to the age-old, tried-and-tested form of communication called writing. But in his written communications, communications that was coming into his compound on a regular basis and going out, America was able to find him because of that word I just used a few seconds ago, regular. Osama bin Laden started to form a schedule. Whether he knew it or not, a pattern was evolving of communications going into a certain area and coming out of an area, always carried by a young male. Something's up. Despite the time when we finally nailed Osama bin Laden in early May of 2011, please note that we were watching that compound for many months prior to that. So important was it to America and our allies that we nail that SOB right where he's at, that not only did we watch him for months and months on end, but that in getting Osama bin Laden is when the world would find out that not only does the United States own stealth aircraft, planes, we also own stealth helicopters. To think that two military helicopters could land in his backyard and, Ob and, and Osama bin Laden never knew about it. That's how silent those aircraft are and were at the time. To the point that one of the aircraft was damaged slightly upon landing, that after we nailed bin Laden, we destroyed that aircraft completely so that it was useless to anybody that tried to discover it, that tried to find out how did America figure out how to overcome that batting of the air that is the signature sound of a helicopter. So that's the fourth ring communication. And finally, recruitment. Unfortunately, these terrorist leaders are not stupid enough to carry out their own terrorist attacks. No, they need other people that they can brainwash to do this dirty work for them. Recruitment also is a source of being exposed because you have to get people from around their areas, if not around the world, bring them to the training compound in order to train them. Between those five different ways that they can leak out where they're at and what they're doing, this became known again as the five ring attack, land, money, weapons, communication, and recruitment. Please note too, 
that while they're also seeking communication information to use against westernized countries and people of goodwill, we can also use the information against them. Oftentimes, my students find it hard to believe, as the information pulled out of West Point, that between 2004 and 2009, 85% of all Al-Qaeda victims were, believe it or not, Muslims. They weren't Westerners. They weren't Americans. They weren't Western European. They were Muslims. In Middle Eastern, and this is the reason why Middle Eastern countries have been slowly, and in some cases more pointedly, turning against them. In Pakistan, 55% of citizens do not support Al-Qaeda. In Egypt, 71%. Lebanon, 98%. So if nothing more, my listeners, especially those in America, please do not look at any one of these types of countries in these areas of the world and automatically think that, well, they may not actually support Al-Qaeda or ISIS, but they're probably not against them either. You'd be dead wrong. They absolutely are. So that brings us then to our update with the impact of 9-11 as we move ahead further into the 21st century. When we come back for our last podcast in our series in the second half of world history, I'm going to then focus only on the year 2022 to discuss some ideas about where we go from here. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com, and email me with any questions or comments you might have or book recommendations as well. And if you liked what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.